Thank you, Anne, and good morning again, everybody. I can ask you to think, have you ever experienced anything that you would describe as perfection? So have you ever had a perfect day? Have you ever eaten a perfect meal? Have you ever heard the perfect song or ever met the perfect person? Sometimes we do actually come close to experiences of things that we would consider to be perfect. Uh, and those are some of the best moments in our lives, experiences that seem to suggest it is possible for things to be exactly as they should be, the ideal, something without anything wrong in it at all. And that experience can be actually be a bit bittersweet because most of the time we do know that the world isn't actually perfect. Beautiful pictures, maybe a slightly the wrong colour or not perfectly composed. Beautiful singing performance with one wrong note. The meal at the restaurant, maybe it's really tasty, but the service is really bad. And, you know, even really great people can be annoying at times or have bad breath, you know, those kinds of things, okay? There's always something. So today in our series, we're looking at 1 Corinthians, I want us to talk about this idea of the ideal and our quest for the ideal and how it relates to being a Christian. Because that's what Paul is describing here, I believe. So last week, to remind you, we started on this series in 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at the topic of living in the Spirit. And I invited us to think of this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth uh, as describing what does it mean to live in God? What does it mean to live in God? We've, we saw that following Jesus is actually like entering into a new home, and it's a place that has lots of rooms, lots of dimensions for us to explore, and Paul speaks about them in this letter. And also, we're thinking about the other side of it. What does it mean for God's Spirit to live in us, to change us and to transform us from the inside out? Again, that's the topic of this letter. And Paul talks about many implications of that. And as I said, so in summary, in 1 Corinthians, what I'm looking at is the idea that as Christians, we live in God and God lives in us. So we live in God and God lives in us. And we saw last week how Paul reminded the church in Corinth that they were called to be holy people, you know, so people who are able to show the presence of God to the world around them through their faith in Jesus. And we are too, as a church here in the hills, to show that God lives in us. But it turns out, as Paul goes on, that the Corinthians actually have a lot to learn if they're to live up to that calling to be God's holy people. And the rest of the letter helps them to understand what that might be like. So today, as I've said, Paul talks to them about their expectations that they have about the ideal in their lives, particularly about their leaders, about their church community, about themselves, and how to understand what is this ideal Christian supposed to be like. And this is important because it seems to Paul that the Corinthians have been caught up in a tendency to chase status in their life as a church. They wanted to have the best leaders. The most, to be the most respected religious community and to be seen as the wisest, most spiritually advanced people around. And Paul says in doing so, they've actually missed the point of what it means to be the church. And in fact, they're getting into a lot of trouble because of that together. And uh, the reasons why it's helpful for us today as a church, the same experience. And as we go along, I'm just going to read a lot of these sections out again so we can hear Paul speak to us as he did to them. So first Paul begins by talking to them about uh, their leaders. And this church, so early in its life, is in the process of entering into divisions and fights over who's the best leader and who the different leaders that people are going to follow. So Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of you should agree with one another and there should be no divisions among you. 
So he says, some of the people have informed me that you know, there are quarrels among you. And some, someone says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Kephas, and others says, I follow Christ. So in this early church, there were already factions and parties that squabble over who they should be listening to. Some people think Paul's the guy, he's got the best ideas, you know. He's the one to follow. Some people really like Apollos. You know, he's the best speaker, apparently. He was really known for that. Some follow Kephas. That's the apostle Peter. He was the most respected apostle, the real deal. And some says, oh, we just follow Christ. Now, it's not clear what that means. Um, in context, it probably means there was a faction in the church trying to say, well, actually, we're above it all. Uh, we're the best faction. We just follow Jesus, you know. But there's still a faction. <laughs> you probably know people who would do that. Um, so the members of the church have elevated one of their leaders to be the ideal. And obviously, if you're associated with the best leader, you're one of the best Christians. So Paul's answer is to rebuke them by saying the attempt to be the best is actually the exact opposite of what Christianity is about. Firstly, Paul himself has no interest in being the chosen leader of a faction in Corinth. He couldn't care less, to be honest, about that. And that's what's behind this really great line in verse 14 to 16. Where he says he can't actually rem- he can remember baptising a couple of people, but he can't really remember who else he might have baptised. So all these people would have said, we're Paul's people. He's like, I don't really remember you. Um, you know, I sympathise with him. I have difficulty remembering what I did a couple of, years, a couple of days ago, let alone. Um, but So Paul doesn't keep a little list of the special Paul people who were baptised by him. No, the only leader who was of any importance to him is Jesus Christ himself. And what Jesus shows is worrying about who the best is is pointless because that's to forget what Jesus did. He went to the cross. And so this is what leads Paul into the main part of our passage in verses 18 to 31. And the basic thrust of this passage is that how God works in the world, in fact, is not through the best people but through human foolishness, weakness and failure. Encouraging. Um, Paul says, you know, God could have sent his son to the greatest, wisest philosophers in the world, the greatest, most devout religious people, the rich and powerful people, and set up a really wonderful, great, respected religion. Easy. But in fact, he's chosen to work through poor, foolish, powerless and unimpressive people. People like the Corinthians. And he's brought salvation to them through the cross of all things. So an instrument of shameful death and criminal punishment. And why has he done that? Well, basically, Paul says, because God does not require any of those things, human wisdom, power, glory, all that, to get things done. Everything in his salvation comes from grace, out of his love for us. It can't be earned. There's nothing you can do to merit it. Paul says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And it's difficult for us to accept those words, because it means that to become a Christian means to be someone who accepts that what we have from God is what we cannot and didn't earn. And if we did, we wouldn't need Jesus to go to the cross for us. And it leaves Christians open to the accusations that we're not really the best quality of people because of that. Um, In verse 18, Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. It seems stupid to a lot of people that you identify yourself with this symbol of shame and death, and that's the way to be saved, and that you think that that's what you need. We have a great example of this truth from the ancient world itself, not long after this letter was written. 
There's a picture there. It might be a bit hard to see, but um, archaeologists have found this particular piece of graffiti scratched on a wall in Rome. It was preserved from the ancient period. And what it is is actually, they reckon, it's a picture of someone who was writing graffiti to make fun of someone they knew who was a Christian. So there's some writing there. It says, um, Alexamenos worships his God. And so there's a man on the left there worshipping what appears to be a figure on a cross with a donkey head. Okay? So whoever made this graffiti thought that this person, Alexamenos, was stupid for believing in Jesus and that the cross was stupid. <laughs> this is what, how people thought of Christians at the time, and we have a record of that. I also found this quote recently from a Greek philosopher, a man named Celsus in the second century. He didn't like Christians very much. He thought they were stupid and he wrote against them. He was sort of like Richard Dawkins in his day. Um, and he kind of wrote, he wrote this scathing review of the church and this he says, this is what Christians say. So he says their injunctions or their rules are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they admit they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonourable and stupid, and only slaves, women and little children. What a nice guy. Yes, that's what he thought of Christians. Well, Paul would say... Yes, that's kind of right, Celsus, is what I've been saying. You know, as he says in verses 20 to 21, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So Paul says, yes, maybe Christianity does appeal to people who aren't considered the best. Celsus is right. To be clear, I don't think that the point Paul is making in this passage, if we read it, is that it's a good thing necessarily to be unwise, lacking education, etc. Uh, I mean, the Christian shouldn't try to be knowledgeable. That's a bad, or that's a bad thing. And I think that if you make, if we think that, that's making the same mistake from a different angle. I, can I merit salvation or be better than other people by not being intellectual or being someone who's not educated or on the margins? That's not just another form of the same problem of snobbery. You know, salvation by lack of education is not any more than salvation by education is. I'll just give myself as an example of what I mean by this, uh, where I think Paul's coming from. Um, like most church leaders, I've spent a considerable amount of time studying the Bible and learning things about God. And I think it's helpful for me to have done that. I don't think it'd be better if I didn't know some of the things that I do. Um, but because of that work, the academic world has bestowed on me probably the most pompously named academic degree in the history of Western civilization. Um, I have a Master of Divinity on the wall. Um, now, that sounds impressive, but I think it would be silly for me or for anyone else to think that fact actually means anything in regards to our relationship to Christ. That's what Paul would say. It's irrelevant before the cross of Jesus. Helpful, but irrelevant. The point of what Paul is saying is that God's kingdom and his salvation it's a matter of grace. It's very hard to grasp that when we're convinced of the sufficiency of our own wisdom and our own achievement, that we can somehow get closer to him through that. Or when we focus on a gifted leader or an ideal best Christian community and we're part of that and we rise above the rest, that's a mistake, he says. That's not what it's about. Because all this negative from talk from Paul is only really meant to pave the way for the good news. So entering into God's house, living in the spirit, is about wisdom and power and glory, yes, but it's not just not about human 
wisdom, power, and glory. It's about the true source of those things, you know, the real stuff, the wisdom and the power and the glory of God. In verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom call, who, who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And in verse 30, which I read earlier, he says, It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It doesn't matter what the people in Corinth are like. Jesus Christ is the source of all those things from God for the human race. Power, wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And those things are available, he says, whether or not we're wise or good in ourselves or strong or know everything. And in fact, they can be seen more clearly at times if we aren't or if we're willing to admit that we aren't. So let's go back to the idea of the ideal that I started with, the perfect what is the ideal Christian? Just think about that in your mind for a second. Who's the ideal Christian? Is it someone who is very good, very wise, very moral, very devout, who attends church every week and who has memorised the entire Bible? No. But if you ever meet such a person, please tell me I have some jobs for them to do. Uh, okay? Um, what is the ideal church? Is it a group of amazing, attractive people? who have lots of spiritual gifts and influence in the world, great leaders, fantastic preachers who can change the world. No. The ideal church is actually more like Corinth. Foolish people who have no idea what they're doing except that they know Jesus and trust in him. The ideals we have about the spiritual life are a projection, Paul would say, of our own desire for acceptance on the basis of our merit. They don't exist, or if they do, they're beside the point. The ideal Christian and the ideal church is found when Jesus Christ is present through the Holy Spirit inside real people who follow Jesus in their real lives, inside, inside our weakness, our imperfection and our foolishness. Paul's not writing this letter to the best people in Corinth, to important, influential people, but to people, he says, they're, they're often despised by the world and they're considered, as he says later, the scum of the earth. Is that how we think of ourselves? Real Christian people and real churches are often quite disappointing, you might find, as you go on through your life. We don't measure up to our own hopes and our own ideals. What is ideal, Paul says, is Christ himself. He is the ideal and he is building the real ideal versions of us through his grace in his time as we live in him and he lives in us. So entering into the life of the Holy Spirit, it's an invitation not to become the ideal person, but to enter into reality and growth through grace. And that's good news. So we can give up our burdensome ideals today, embrace our real selves and the real community we live in, and in that way we hope that we will get back one day the real ideal that Christ has designed us for and made us for in eternal life. So let me pray as we reflect on that this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you called us and, and entered into our lives even when we weren't perfect. We pray that as you live in us and we live in you, you would guide us more and more to understand what we are to be and that we would rely not on our own wisdom and power but on you.
I pray that the fa our faith would be strengthened through this. We would experience grace and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.